from Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson. Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. In the 1990s, as mobile phones were first taking off, the NSA introduced a mandatory bit of technology to be integrated into them, the Clipper chip. The Clipper chip was part of the Clinton administration's program to, quote, allow federal, state, and local law enforcement officials the ability to decode intercepted voice and data transmissions. In other words, this would give the government a backdoor. This was just one battle waged in what has come to be called the crypto wars, the fight between government and often individuals, technologists, and even corporations over how encryption technology should be treated. Post-World War II, encryption was treated solely as a munitions export, meaning a weapon, and was regulated as such. Now, in the 1960s, this started to receive some pushback from financial institutions. And finally, in the 1990s, as the internet and technologies like mobile phones started to take off, this all came to a head with this clipper chip. Now, if you've been following the news, this isn't new to you at all. We've seen companies like Apple take a stand and encrypt iPhone data in such a way that even the company itself would not be able to access it. We've seen t-shirts with export-restricted RSA encryption source code printed on them, making the shirt an export-restricted munition or weapon. Now, we may have thought that the crypto wars ended in the 90s with the cypherpunks, but Edward Snowden has showed us otherwise. And now we may be on the brink of another type of crypto war. This week, we're going to talk about Washington finally taking notice of this little thing we call Bitcoin. So it's been a big month for Bitcoin in the United States and specifically in Washington. So over the course of about one week, and this is a couple of weeks ago now, we saw the likes of Donald Trump, obviously the president, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, the secretary of the Treasury, all of these people saying the words Bitcoin for the first time and finally (laughs) taking notice. Now, it seems like a lot of this has come on the back of the Libra announcement, because as we all know, if Facebook even sneezes these days, then Capitol Hill and Washington are going to jump all over it. And (laughs) it's been a really interesting time to observe how the framing of Libra as a cryptocurrency or as another player in this space has affected the way that Bitcoin and these other technologies have been received. So let's just run quickly through the timeline here, shall we, Meltem? Yes, I like to call this um, crypto goes to Washington. 
little Mr. Bitcoin or Miss Bitcoin goes to Washington. So I'll kick it off. Um, and what we can do is maybe just highlight what we thought was most interesting about some of the remarks that have been made over that one week. Um, so Thursday, um, I believe it was July 17th, but can check the date. Um, Jerome Powell gave testimony in the Senate and he compared Bitcoin to... July 11th. Thanks, yeah. Jill. Um, he compared Bitcoin to digital gold. And um, what was so amazing to me about watching the Jerome Powell testimony, and you can actually see snippets of it on Twitter where people laid his word as, um, over the testimony, is he actually described Bitcoin really well. Yeah. I mean, he said, you know, people use it as an alternative to gold. It's It's a speculative store of value, which I would say is actually spot on. He says, you know, no one uses Bitcoin for payments, which is more or less true today. We may see that change, of course, as Lightning continues to be developed. But he got a lot right. Yeah, I was amazed at the level of nuance. And so what I want to know is what uh, Bitcoin maximalist has Jay Powell been talking to? Well, the other, the other funny thing here about this is that, of course... Powell earlier this past week, he cut interest rates for the first time since 2008, mm -hmm. which was a very controversial move. You know, there are a lot of folks saying, oh, he's only doing this because he's in Trump's back pocket and Donald Trump threatened to, to fire the chairman of the Fed and folks at the Fed if they didn't find a way to stimulate the economy further. And then here, three weeks prior to this, you have the same guy standing up saying, Bitcoin. yeah, Bitcoin is treated a lot, a lot like gold, guys. Totally. And he's <laughs> not the only one at the Fed, by the way, who talks about Bitcoin. Uh, Bullard at the St. Louis Fed actually last week released a new research paper um, that he and his team at the Fed have written. Um, and he's been writing about Bitcoin since about 2013. Not yeah. always getting it right, but um, the Fed's actually been pretty active. And um, so let's go to Trump. So the next day, July 12th, um, our chief executive himself, Mr. Donald Trump, uh, POTUS, if you will, tweeted about Bitcoin. Um, do you want to read the tweet, Jill, or do you want me to? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not going to be able to do a good Donald Trump impression. My dad does a really good Donald Trump impression. He even has the hair for it. But oh, wow. I'll just read this in my regular voice. Um, <laughs> so this was actually the evening of July 11th. Donald Trump tweets, I'm not a fan of Bitcoin, capital B, and other cryptocurrencies, capital C, which are not money and whose value is highly volatile and based on thin air. Unregulated crypto assets can facilitate unlawful behavior, including drug trade and other illegal activities. Similarly, Facebook's Libra's virtual currency will have little standing or dependability. If Facebook and other companies want to become a bank, they must seek a new banking charter and become subject to all banking regulations, just like other banks, both national and international. We have only one real currency in the USA, and it is stronger than ever, both dependable and reliable. It is by far the most dominant currency anywhere in the world, and it will always stay that way. It is called the United States dollar. Now, there is so much to unpack there. But the first thing I want to point out is the sheer irony that he's saying the US dollar is stronger than ever when really what Donald Trump has been calling for over the last year has been a weaker dollar. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. But look, if we if we actually look at the text of the tweet, what I think is really interesting about it, um, number one, he differentiates between 
unregulated crypto assets and Bitcoin. So there is a clear line here where the administration's recognizing, oh, there are regulated activities happening with these things. So I think that's number one. Number two is um, Facebook's Libra, quote unquote, virtual currency. Um, the way it's referenced, the virtual currency part is put in air quotes, which I think, um, you know, shows some awareness from the administration that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are fundamentally different from what Facebook's proposing to do. So I think that's really interesting. And then the third component is... Um, Really, what you see here, and when we get to um, Nuchen's press conference, we can talk about this more, is uh, what Trump's really saying here is, look, regulated activity in this country is fine. If you want to operate in the financial market and speculate, it's fine. But if you run a regulated business, if you conduct business activity that's typically regulated under, say, bank regulations, follow the rules. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, those no. three things are really interesting. Like, I did not expect that level of nuance, so... I mean, let's be honest, Donald Trump, I don't think actually wrote these tweets. Um, right, I think Nuchin wrote it. <laughs> but I, I, I think that that's, that's absolutely right. There is a decent amount of nuance in here. Um, you know, something else that stood out to me, though, is he says, unregulated crypto assets can facilitate unlawful behavior, blah, blah, blah. Like, look, that's all true. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that that's not. But just the sheer double think that can go on with, with people who are newer to the space in terms of seeing that, but not seeing that the same is true of cash is just shocking to me. And this is, I think, a good segue probably into what Mnuchin had to say as well. Yep. So then uh, the next Monday, uh, Mnuchin, was it Monday or Friday that he did the press conference? I honestly don't know. We keep messing up these dates, so let's not even try. I think it was July 23rd or 24th. Okay. Order of events. Um, Mnuchin does a press conference, right? Right after the Trump tweet, he does this press conference. And basically in the press conference, what he laid out, which I thought was, again, super nuanced, is Bitcoin's highly speculative. Do your own research. If you want to speculate on Bitcoin, follow the rules. If you run a Bitcoin company and you are engaging in activity that's normally regulated, we're going to regulate you. And if you try to use Bitcoin for unlawful activity, we will find you and treat you as criminal. That's basically what he said. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, he had this whole comparison to Bitcoin is a Swiss bank account, and we're going to avoid that becoming the case. We're going to avoid this being yet another way for people to basically get their money out of the the regulated financial system. And there again, I just want to point out, like, if you think that Bitcoin is the issue here, you want to take a good, long, hard look at cash. And of course, Mnuchin is the one who, there's that great meme, that great uh, photograph of him and his wife holding up a pallet of, I think it was $100 bills. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. And everyone sort of said like, oh, they look like, you know, Cruella de Vil or characters, the evil villains out of a, a Disney movie. And just, again, the irony of, okay, here you are holding up the real tool that is actually used for money laundering and all of this illicit activity. And instead, you're going to come after Bitcoin, whose entire market cap, right, is a small fraction of what goes on in cash and also in the regulated banking system. But but look, at the end of the day, um, who doesn't want to have their signature on dollar bills? I mean, 
Secretary of the Treasury kind of sounds like an amazing job. Not going to lie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, and, this goes uh, back to this. You can go back through history of, you know, kings putting their faces on coins. Oh, totally. But look at ICOs, right? Uh, it's kind of similar. Let's print some money and put our face on it. Um, anyways, we won't get into that. But look, I thought overall the tone of that press conference was really interesting. I also thought the delineation um, between regulated capital markets activity um, and speculative assets was really important. I think basically what they were saying, and Mnuchin in subsequent interviews has said, if people want to buy Bitcoin and speculate on it, I have no issue with that so long as they follow the rules and do their own research, right? There are yeah. tons of assets that people like to buy that are speculative in nature. People buy lottery tickets. <laughs> but look, all you have to do is look at penny stocks right? Um, there are mm -hmm. tons of assets that people buy. As long as you follow the rules of this country, when you're issuing these assets, when you're listing them, when you're trading them, when you're marketing them, go crazy. Do your own research. He doesn't think Bitcoin has value. But again, I think the really important nuance here is the government shouldn't be the ones deciding what is and is not good, right? And we'll get into this when we talk about what the SEC does in their role. Um, but it's not really up to regulators to decide what people should or should not have. It's up to them to enforce the laws of the country as they stand and make new laws if they're needed. And so I thought that was actually quite good. All right, let's get into the darker side. So yeah, um, the next yeah. day, um, there is Senate banking hearing with just David Marcus, who's the head of Libra, uh, Facebook's digital payment project. I refuse to call it a cryptocurrency. It's a digital payment project. Mm -hmm. um, not much really to say there. I mean, I think it was a typical hearing where no real questions were answered and uh, mostly senators just wanted to get sound bites in. Um, but then the- Yeah, I mean, I'll say I was pretty impressed actually, though, on both sides. You know, I think that my my last kind of point of reference on this was, I guess, the Zuck hearings in a lot of ways. And it, this this couldn't have been more different, right? I think that the senators came equipped, yes, with their sound bites, but with some pretty legitimate questions. And, you know, on the other side of it, I have to say, I think that David Marcus did a very good job of, you know, being educational and factual and and also, I guess, pretty humble before what they had to say. Interesting. Well, let's talk about um, what happened Wednesday. So on Wednesday, there was a House Financial Services Committee meeting. So not the Senate, but the House, the other part of America's Congress. And I think and I think one of my good friends might have been there, Melissa. <laughs> so yeah, we, we can talk about this. So um, first they had a morning hearing with just uh, David Marcus. And I think what was most interesting about the morning hearing um, was what some of the Republican congressmen said. Um as you know, Maxine Waters is the chairwoman of the Financial Services Committee, um, but the ranking member, meaning the member of the non-majority party, um, is Representative McHenry. He's a Republican, um, and he gave a really interesting five-minute opening sort of commentary where um, he basically said, look, uh, Satoshi 10 years ago introduced this idea to the world, the idea of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is here. We can't stop it. We can't kill it. It's not going anywhere. And so what we as uh, regulators can do and policymakers can do, we're either going to figure out how to take this new technology and embrace it and take what Satoshi gave us and make it work for America, um, or we're going to bury our head in the sand and 
that's going to put us at a great disadvantage, something to that regard. But hearing some of the Republican congressmen talking about Satoshi, one of them talked about um, GitHub and IRC. Uh, another one was t- <laughs> talking about, um, you know, the dollar bill and not being able to censor use of the US dollar on a global basis. It was really interesting just to see the level of knowledge, um, but also the level of nuance again in some of the commentary yeah. and the questioning. Yeah, absolutely. And the stark contrast of that versus the kind of talking head status of of Trump and Mnuchin that we saw earlier in the week, I thought was really notable. But Meltem, I, I got to ask you, so what was it like to be up there and to hear the word shitcoin, to be asked, are you familiar with shitcoins versus Bitcoin? <laughs> you, the shitcoin queen. What it, I don't, what was that experience? Did you know the question was coming? So no, look. Um, so the way it works in these hearings, you, right? You really didn't know it was coming. No, wow. So the way it works in these hearings, just oh to give God. people an inside sort of peek. I don't know anything about Washington or politics, right? So this was all new to me. Um, so what's really interesting? Again, the Democrats are the majority party. So whenever there's a hearing, um, the majority party gets to invite four witnesses, and the minority party, the Republicans, get to invite one. Um, and the way it'll work is the witnesses um, will give a five-minute testimony. Everything in the House is five-minute segments, and it's timed. And if you go over, you get gaveled and stopped. Um, So the way it'll work is the chairwoman, who's of the majority party, will give opening remarks. Then the minority member will give opening remarks. Then the witnesses will each give their five-minute opening remarks. And then it'll go into a Q&A, where it'll start with a a Democratic uh, representative. Typically, an order of seniority will have five minutes to interrogate um, the witnesses or just to talk if they just want to use that five minutes to talk. Then it'll go to a minority party member, so the Republicans, and then it'll go back and forth until people are done with their questions. And then there will be five-minute wrap-up from the, the chairwoman and the minority member. So that's how it works. Um, so I gave my testimony. I had written my testimony um, over the weekend. And uh, shout out to the folks at Coin Center who um, were really helpful. A few other people sort of read through it, but really it was my words. And you can read it online. It's about 17 pages. Um, and then I distilled it into a five-minute sort of opening. But really what I talked about was Bitcoin um, and why Bitcoin is such an important innovation. And I'm um, really drawing a distinction between technology Um, open source code, an open network uh, like the internet, which is the Bitcoin network, and uh, companies building on top of this network, which in this country are, uh, there are many Bitcoin companies that provide various products and services that interact with Bitcoin. And um, the majority of these, if not all of them, uh, follow rules and regulations. So that's really what we talked about. But um, McHenry's office, so he's the uh, Republican ranking member um, of the committee, you know, they all coordinate amongst one another. And so if you listen to uh, the questioning from the Republicans during both the Marcus hearing and the witness hearing um, after, they clearly um, were aligned. Everyone receives the testimony. So, you know, I had to have someone drop off, I think, 150 copies of my printed out testimony um, ahead of time. So there's a whole process. It's posted online. It's all filmed. But uh, the Republicans, you know, they were really coordinated in their messaging and they were really knowledgeable. Now, what you may already know is Representative Davidson is someone who's been uh, interacting with the crypto community for some time, along with Jared Polis and a few others. Um, And so what I thought was really interesting, (laughs) you know, in the morning hearing, he was kind of giving me a funny look. And I was like, did I do something wrong? Like, do I have lipstick on my (laughs) teeth? 
And then when he started his questioning um, in the afternoon session, right, when it was his five minute turn, you know, he started off with some general commentary on how important Bitcoin was and everything else. Um, but then when he turned to me and he said, uh, Miss, Mr. Mirrors, uh, and then he started into his question, the moment he said shitcoin, I'm sitting there, right? You have five minutes. Oh, you have to respond God. very succinctly because people cut you off and it's very high stress. I was like, oh my God, what do I do? So you can see in the video a kind of smirk or smile or something. And I was like, I am, yes. <laughs> and then he's like, yeah, you said it so seriously. Like your mask did not slip for a second. I don't know. But then oh, he man. asked me to explain the difference between Bitcoin and shit coins. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to talk about shit coins. I'm not, I don't want to be known as the shit coin queen. So I really just tried <laughs> to use every opportunity to talk about Bitcoin. Cause look, at the end of the day, I think what we have to remember is people who've only been reading the news headlines about Bitcoin and crypto, they think it's all garbage and people out to scam and like just drugs on the internet. And that's not what it is. And getting someone to understand Bitcoin's like step one of a very long process. So to me, the only thing we should be doing right now is just introducing people to this is what Bitcoin is and here's how it works and here's why it matters because everything else is just derivative of Bitcoin. Yeah. And I think no, I mean that's what we need. But yeah, go ahead. Look, so it was an interesting experience. Overall, I, I think, you know, there were parts of that day um, where Bitcoin really stood out. And there were some comments that were made that really, I think, were good little snippets to get in about Bitcoin. I, I was going to say, I, I mean, I have to give you a lot of credit, Melton, because I think that you could not have represented us better up there. And I'm not just saying that as your friend and your podcast co-host, but it was remarkable to watch as time went on over the course of the hearing, how the conversation really started to change from being about, okay, we have these cryptocurrencies and then we have Libra and, you know, we're kind of thinking of them all in the same bucket to really everyone in the room coming along to this much more nuanced understanding of, okay, no, there's this thing called Libra that's new and you know, developing and, and we don't quite know what it is yet, but it's probably more akin to a payments network or a digital currency versus something like Bitcoin that is a sort of true tried and true cryptocurrency. And then of course, somewhere in the middle, we have shit coins and we're still not quite sure what to do with those. But, um, but look, yeah, there's going to be more hearings really on Bitcoin, right? And I will say um, the Democrats invited a lot of academics as their witnesses, which was um, well and good. I think the Republicans deliberately invited someone from industry to just sort of talk about what's happening in industry. Um, and mm -hmm. so I was very happy to be there and to have had the opportunity. Um, I would encourage other people, you know, as these opportunities present themselves, think really carefully about the platform you're given, engage with um, um, folks who are experienced in the world of Washington, D.C. to help you navigate how to effectively sort of deliver messages. But there's going to be more. And I think um, what was a really great takeaway is Chairwoman Waters did say after the hearing and in subsequent conversations, there will be more hearings on Libra, but they're going to treat that separately. And then I think they want to start a separate conversation around Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So that separation, I think, hopefully is something that was accomplished. So. That's great. I mean, I'll take that as a win. I it's funny. I think that I've said this a few times, but previously 
it was Bitcoin versus the US dollar, right? And it was very easy, I think, for outsiders or, or folks in Washington or whoever it might be to look at the two and say, Bitcoin bad, US dollar good. Right. <laughs> and whether or not Libra has intentionally done this or or, you know, sort of what what the framing was meant to be in a lot of ways. Now people look at it and say, Bitcoin versus Libra. Okay, good, bad, ugly, what's going on here? And it's just cast Bitcoin in a very, very different light. Totally. But then, um, look, it was a crazy week. Um, I think I was very impressed with the level of nuance that was demonstrated and really the sophistication of the conversation. Um, But I want to switch gears a bit. So, you know, the Hill, Washington, D.C. kind of had this crypto awakening. And to be determined where that goes, um, they're out of session right now. They're on recess for the next month. And so when they come back in September, going into election season, you know, it'll be interesting to see what candidates start to pick up on Bitcoin, start to court the Bitcoin community for contributions, maybe. You know, this is the game of mm-hmm. politics after all. Um, so so we'll see. But what I really want to talk about is there's all this commentary around Bitcoin. People want to have conversations, but there's really still so many fundamental misunderstandings about Bitcoin and regulation. So let's talk about mm-hmm. what is the status of Bitcoin. Well, it's unregulated, right? (laughs) Uh, As someone who's been in this industry for a very long time, and you as well, that is completely false. So let's dive in. Jill, Bitcoin's not regulated. Yeah, so this is a meme that right that that goes around and around of oh well you know Bitcoin it exists outside of the law it's not regulated and of course for anyone who's built something with Bitcoin who's used Bitcoin who's bought Bitcoin you know very well that Bitcoin is heavily regulated but but Jill it's the Wild West. <laughs> It may be the Wild West, but, you know, there were still sheriffs trolling around out there. and um, Yeah, and expensive lawyers and accountants and basically everything. Exactly. So what- and we've got every sheriff and his brother trying to get in- involved in Bitcoin from the right, SEC, the CFTC, the IRS. We'll run through them all here. Okay. So who's who's the big biggest, baddest daddy of them all when it comes to regulation in U.S. capital markets? The SEC. So the securities... SEC, baby. Exactly. And what does the SEC do? So it's the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they regulate anything that is a security, including determining whether or not something is a security and therefore whether or not it has gone through its securities filing process and securities offering process. And so that is where things get really interesting for tokens and ICOs, et cetera, right? Because the SEC has oversight of all securities issuance. And so if your token, in fact, is a security, then you should have filed with the SEC. That's right. And so the SEC, as a uh, licensed FINRA representative, um, I can tell you this, uh, the SEC, so the Investment Act of um, 19, the Investment Act of 1933, 1940, um, basically gave the SEC purview over the issuance of new securities. So if you're a company and you want to raise money from the public in the form of an equity or debt offering, your security and you would follow these rules. And then the Securities and Exchange Act, um, 
is the regulation of secondary trading of securities. So once you've been approved to issue a security, now you're trading it, you're making markets. Um, there are all sorts of rules around how all of that happens. And the rules of the SEC are typically implemented at the individual company level by issuers themselves. So companies um, offering investments, whether that's a corporation offering debt or equity, a municipality offering some sort of bond, um, whether that's a um, investment firm um, like a hedge fund, a mutual fund, fund or another offer, mutual fund offering an investment vehicle, tons of different things fall under the purview of the SEC. But when it comes to Bitcoin, the SEC, after a period of contemplation, has decided what? Well, so they've decided that it's not a security. I want to go back in history just for a second, though, to it was Two years ago, almost exactly to the day, it was the end of July in 2017, and the SEC came out with one of its first statements ever about cryptocurrency. And that was specifically with regards to the DAO tokens. So for the OGs in the room, you'll remember the Ethereum DAO was the first decentralized autonomous organization that ended up getting hacked. And a bunch of people bought shares in that DAO. At objection, it did yes. not get hacked. It was a smart contract with a flaw and the flaw was exploited, but it was legal exploitation. Okay, okay fine. Not a hack. <laughs> if you want to get specific about it, which the SEC does appreciate a high level of specificity. You've been hanging out with a lot of lawyers, Melton. But... The SEC came out and concluded that the DAO tokens were securities, but in their statement, the SEC chairman, Jay Clayton at the time, he said that they were in fact digital securities that had been bought in exchange for Ether, a virtual currency. And so that was the first, uh, the first statement that gave us a hint that Bitcoin and Ethereum might not in fact be securities. That is correct. So Bitcoin, not a security, according to the SEC. So you know what? They don't have to deal with it. Now let's go to the second largest regulator when it comes to markets, the CFTC. The CFTC is uh, the Commodities and Futures Trade Commission, and they have oversights of commodities and commodities markets, as well as futures derivative swaps and all sorts of uh, product constructions that rely on um, future physical delivery of a product. Derivatives, basically. Um, exactly, right? Synthetics, things that uh, allow markets to grow far beyond their physical capacity. Um, so here's what's really interesting about the CFTC. Um, the CFTC is an interesting agency. Um, we probably all are familiar with the former CFTC commissioner, Mr. Giancarlo, uh, who we <laughs> lovingly dad. called crypto, crypto dad, Bitcoin dad. Yep. Um, he recently left the CFTC. There's now a new commissioner um, who doesn't have a moniker yet, but maybe he will at some point in the future. But the CFTC basically um, has said Bitcoin's a digital commodity. And so they're only going to regulate swaps and futures um, on Bitcoin and other crypto assets as part of their mandate. That's right. And, you know, there's a lot of confusion out there about commodities and the CFTC in general. People will often get confused. People who aren't necessarily, you know, deep in the finance space or spending all day on this will get confused about what regulations apply to commodities since they're not securities. And one area in particular that's relevant to highlight here, especially as we talk about Bitcoin and crypto, 
is that there isn't the same notion of insider trading when it comes to commodities as there is with securities, right? Even though, of course, there is still privileged access to information if, say, you are running an airline that's highly dependent on on oil or if you're a gold miner, et cetera, you may have privileged access to what supply is going to look like, et cetera. But it's ultimately a very different market that's subject to very different regulations from securities. And what's really interesting is whenever people talk about um, Bitcoin, what I find so interesting is people are like, oh, uh, there's insider trading. And um, commodities are not securities. So in securities, you can't have information asymmetry, which is why the SEC and FINRA, um, which is a self-regulatory organization, but it's focused on rules and conduct, they have a lot of rules around information um, asymmetry, what you can and can't do. And there have been a lot of lawsuits um, about insider trading, most notably one involving Martha Stewart, believe it or not. Um, (laughs) But commodities are not securities. And so in the commodities world, there is no insider trading. There is no real information asymmetry um, because commodities are physically produced, right? Um, When I was trading ethanol and methanol, which are commodities um, derived from uh, natural gas, I would actually go out to Iowa and look at cornfields. Corn um, is used to produce ethanol. And um, we would try to figure out, you know, what the supply curve was going to look like, demand was going to look like based on plastics production. So commodities are very different. There is no concept of insider trading. And so I think a lot of people, when they talk about Bitcoin and information asymmetry, that's something they don't quite grasp. That's right. And, you know, interestingly, I'll just tie this back very quickly to what Jay Powell said in his statement. Again, he was the Fed chairman comparing Bitcoin to gold. It makes a lot of sense thinking about Bitcoin in that framework under the auspices of the CFTC to me, um, given, given all of the parallels there. But moving right along, because we've got a lot of other agencies to get through, what's next? The IRS... Yes. Oh, the IRS. We know you need to pay us taxes. We can't tell you how much, but once you figure it out, and once you think you figured it out, we'll look at it. We'll let you know if we think you're right. That's basically the IRS. Uh Now, the IRS... It's so bad. The IRS has said Bitcoin's property. It's taxed as property, meaning capital gains rules apply. If you've held Bitcoin for less than a year, it's taxed as ordinary income. If you've held it for longer than a year, um, it is taxed as capital gains at the capital gains rate, which is typically 20%. That's right. And so pay your taxes, kiddos. Don't get audited. Um, keep good records of everything, even though the the crypto exchanges aren't going to help you do that. <laughs> but look, I, I've been audited by the IRS. Um, I was audited when I was in grad school. Um, I had good records, luckily. Um, I keep great records. You can use services. I personally use token tax, um, but there are a number of other ones out there that help you pull data directly from exchanges. Um, the IRS has been getting smarter about Bitcoin. They did this John Doe summons of Coinbase and their customers and they've now gone on a little fishing trip um, where they're sending out letters to a bunch of different Coinbase users. So look, um, the IRS is going to come for you. Two things in America are certain. You're going to die and you're going to pay taxes in <laughs> inverse order and uh, hopefully not related to one another. This is, this is why, though, crypto and cryo are so popular. It's people trying to avoid both. But Oh, that's amazing, Jill. Crypto and cryo, taxes go. and death. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I love that. All right. Who else have we got here on the docket? FinCEN. So FinCEN is the agency that is in charge of basically all KYC and AML enforcement. Yeah, KYC I think it's AML like 
It's um, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, I think. There we go. So KYC, know your customer rules. This is what banks have to abide by uh, to make sure that they know who's on the other side of all of the transactions going through them. AML, anti-money laundering kind of speaks for itself here. Um, And FinCEN, of course, collaborates with OFAC, which is the Office of Financial Assets Control, to make sure that the folks on the other side of the transactions going through the U.S. system are not people who have been sanctioned by the U.S. government. Um, and so it gets starts to get really hairy here uh, in terms of thinking about what the actual, you know, if the IRS comes and audits you and finds that you haven't paid some of your taxes, you're going to get a big, big old fine and a slap on the wrist. If OFAC comes along and discovers that you have been intentionally or unintentionally sending money to terrorists or, or people on the sanctions list, it's going to be a much, much bigger deal. So we can start to see kind of the range of trouble that you can get in with the US government when it comes to Bitcoin, which contrary to popular belief is very much regulated. That is very true. Uh, let's talk about. All right, what else? Have we yep. Um, so let's talk about um, the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Mm-hmm. Um, so the OCC is an interesting regulatory agency for this reason. Um, they tried to create a fintech sandbox where basically what they were going to do is, you know, in the US, there's kind of this patchwork approach to regulation where you have federal regulation, but you also have state level regulation. Now, what's really interesting is states in the United States of America have a very specific area of regulation that is theirs and theirs alone to oversee, and that is money transmission. So even though we have all of these federal agencies that have oversight of markets and all of these other things at the federal level, supranational, like nationally, right? Um, the states at the state level govern transmission across of money across state lines. Um, and so mm-hmm. uh, money transmission is a hot button issue. The State Bankers Association or SBA um, basically got wind of the fact that the OCC was going to try to create a fintech charter whereby smaller companies wouldn't have to apply with uh, SBA state banking laws or money transmission laws, but they were actually going to be able to use a different sort of regulatory regime at the federal level until they got to certain size. And as we know, um, the revolution of the United States of America in 1776 was really important to people in the United States, states' rights. So there was a big battle. Um, Basically, the states sued the OCC and won. So um, just interesting, again, to see the battle for power over money transmission. Obviously, the ability to tax. um, We see this with the the role of the New York Department of Financial Services, which is the regulator in New York, uh, NYDFS has its own scheme regulating Bitcoin companies. So and this is this is one of my favorite things about if you ever log in to create an account on a Bitcoin exchange or Bitcoin wallet, etc. Often what you'll see is a signpost before you get let in the door saying, if you are domiciled in North Korea, Iran, Somalia, or the New York or the state of New York, then you will not be allowed to use this product. It's like <laughs> Yeah, what do these things have in common? That's hilarious. All right. Um, and then once we get through uh, money transmission, really what we have is the intelligence community. So a lot of what we talked about sort of blends um, regulation, meaning rulemaking, and enforcement, meaning how you enforce the rules, meaning how you get punished. Um, and typically punishment takes two forms. There are uh, civil crimes, right? Um, and then there are uh, federal or criminal crimes, and they have different penalties. But in the U.S., you can expect to pay fees. Um, in some cases, you 
personally can expect to go to jail or be incarcerated, have your assets seized, assets frozen, etc. The intelligence community is a really strong part of this. Um, as we know, the Department of Justice has a cyber crimes division. They were very involved in the Silk Road case. Um, and as we know, Katie Hahn, who was part of that DOJ cyber crimes group, um, was a big part of that. In addition, the FBI, the CIA, um, MI6, Global Europol, Interpol, the global intelligence community has been interacting with Bitcoin companies for a long time. In fact, in 2015, a number of the exchanges I was an investor in partnered together with the help of a, a law firm called Steptoe & Johnson and formed something called the uh, Blockchain Alliance. And basically what they did was um, create a streamlined way for intelligence agencies to issue subpoena requests to exchanges about specific wallet addresses because all of these exchanges were getting hit on a daily basis with hundreds of requests from intelligence for data about specific wallet addresses. And so um, what people I think sometimes fail to recognize is the intelligence community has been one of the earliest adopters of uh, Bitcoin monitoring technology, Bitcoin network monitoring technology. And um, obviously, you know, we saw that um, DARPA and other sort of parts of the intelligence community and the uh, military community have been very focused on research, um, have been very focused on understanding network topology, network morphology and how different parts of the crypto ecosystem interact. That's right. So whew, that covers just about everything here, I think. I'm sure that Chill. there are Bitcoin's one or two unregulated. missed. But yeah, Bitcoin's but don't, don't forget, Bitcoin is unregulated, you guys. Like, please, I literally want to vomit when people say this to me because these companies in the US are spending millions of dollars complying with all these different agencies who, by the way, issue conflicting guidance. Yeah. No, that's exactly it's great. right. It's just a peach. But right. So this is this is far from the first time, as we just as we discussed in the opening, that we've seen the government try to regulate technology, and this is far from the first time that we've seen them basically flail around in their attempts to. So let's go through some of the ways that they're actually trying to have the rubber meet the road here, and let's put that into some context for our listeners. What do you say? Let's do it. Grind my gears, Jill. <laughs> We've talked about Washington, D.C. We've talked about how unregulated Bitcoin is. <laughs> um, let's talk about something that really grinds my gears, banning Bitcoin. So, yeah, there's a lot to dive into here. I kind of just want to set the stage, though, first and mention there's a big difference between regulating something and enforcing that regulation on it. And this is a point of confusion that we've seen time and time again with governments and with agencies when it comes to technology, and Bitcoin is no different. And that, of course, is why we started today's episode talking about the encryption bans of the 80s and the 90s, right? This is not the first attempt that we're seeing with Bitcoin to weaponize software. Now, of course, Code is protected under free speech. You gave that example, Melton, which I think is a great one of having the RSA code on a t-shirt. And mm -hmm. like, is that really going to be considered a munitions export, that t-shirt? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but we, we have many examples of this. One that you brought up as well to me was GitHub banning Iranian users because, of course, Microsoft is a U.S. company subject to sanctions. And what all yep. of that brings us to is this idea that somehow 
somewhere, somehow, a government is going to be able to ban the Bitcoin protocol, which I am just not buying. Right. And I think this again, um, in, in my testimony to the House, this is what I really wanted to enunciate or sort of clarify. I view it sort of at three levels. Um, there's the Bitcoin protocol, which is code. Um, and as you've just mentioned, code is protected under free speech. Um, code in and of itself, it doesn't do anything, right? Um, it's an idea. And information and ideas can be expressed openly. Now, where that starts to change is when the code gets run, right? So this is the network layer um, where the code meets meat space or physical space. Um, how do you stop people from running code? Um, people have tried, right? So if we recall some of the saga around file sharing, right? Mm -hmm. um, BitTorrent, as we all know, which now got acquired by Tron, which is so depressing, Jill. It's... <laughs> I can't. I hate 2019. Um, anyways, but how are you going to stop people from running code? Again, this is one of the ideas I think that makes Bitcoin so subversive and so powerful. You have this piece of open source code that anyone can download. And then if you have an internet connection and a computer or a device even that can run the Bitcoin code or Bitcoin client, you can now be a part of the network. Now, um, one of the interesting things, and I know you and I have been wanting to do an episode on this for a while, is the fact that when you run the Bitcoin code, um, even though code is free speech, even though running code isn't an activity that governments can necessarily ban, you are depending on ISPs or internet service providers and telecommunications companies or telcos. These are regulated companies. They've helped the government censor the flow of information before, and they'll do it again. Um, and so what the Bitcoin community has come up with, and this is not a new idea, it's existed in um, in different forms for a long time. Ham radios actually were one of the mm -hmm. first implementations of this. Ham radio operators in the U.S. they're hobbyists. Um, they created their own sort of network community outside of um, the existing telcos, the existing sort of service providers. Um, but this is mesh networking, right? So the idea that you could create peer-to-peer uh, -peer computational networks where you're no longer relying on centralized intermediaries or ISPs, number of different meshes. Like I said, I think we'll do an episode on one. There's also the Blockstream satellite, uh, which I think is super cool. So basically, you have a satellite in space. Um, you know, it's supranational. Um, it doesn't fall into the jurisdiction of any one country. But basically, uh, you can beam transactions up to space and it can beam transactions down. Um, I think the affordability of CubeSats or nano satellites, really small satellites that are very inexpensive to launch and aren't quite in space, but just um, in Earth's atmosphere. That's another idea people are working on. And then and one thing that a few people um, at MIT and at Chain Code Labs are working on is even um, reducing the uh, requirements to run a node. This is one of the things that um, a project called Chia, which is being built by the creator of BitTorrent, Bram Cohen's working on. Not to be it, confused with the part of BitTorrent that was acquired by Tron, of course. Exactly. But it's basically the idea like, okay, so if running a Bitcoin node, you know, you need at least 260 gigabytes um, on your hard drive. You need constant connectivity to the internet. It's not exactly 
economically easy to do? Um, could you create networks, um, whether it's Bitcoin and some cert- derivation thereof or an entirely new network where you could actually um, run a node or participate in the development and growth of the network on your phone, right? So a lot of different ideas here, but I think the network layer, um, as long as you're dependent on ISPs and existing internet providers and telecommunications providers, there's always risk there. Um, but there's so much internet traffic, honestly, that it's going to be really hard to throttle back people running Bitcoin nodes. A lot of what this reminds me of actually is music and the music industry. And there's this notion in the music world of a pirate radio, right? Um, And so one of the most famous examples of this was in the 1960s, late 1960s, uh, in the UK, the BBC radio was not servicing pop and rock music. It was just far too progressive for them and their stiff upper lips and their their cups of tea. Um, and so what you had was all of these, in a way, quite literally pirate radio stations that would station themselves in Irish waters or in yeah. other waters <laughs> offshore of the United Kingdom, uh, broadcasting pop and rock music back to the coast and, and to the British mainland. Um, and, you know, it, it's just, it goes to show that wherever there is a demand, people will find a way to service that demand when technology is involved. And oh, 100%. try as the government might, try as the ISPs might, try as the telcos might, try as the radio stations might, you know, people are going to find a way to continue to rock on. (laughs) Um, That's actually, I want to talk briefly here also about um, the challenge of enforcing bans on peer-to-peer networking or peer-to-peer file sharing. So um, obviously a lot of us use LimeWire or Kazaa, which were basically interfaces that allowed you to easily run uh, the BitTorrent uh, client, right? Um, But what's really interesting is, um, you know, when Kazaa and LimeWire and all these things got shut down, um, there was this service that emerged called Pirate Bay. Um, And the Pirate Bay was basically site where you could um, go to file share and uh, you go there, you know, get the latest music, get the latest movies, whatever. So they actually, um, it was a, um, I think a Swedish group of founders. But one of the interesting things is typically regulatory jurisdiction is defined defined by physical boundaries. So what they did is they started um, moving their servers around. So for a while, they put their servers where they ran the code on a ship and they sailed the ship in open water. So basically what that meant is it wasn't really clear who would have regulatory jurisdiction to go in and shut the servers down because the servers weren't really in a specific place. Uh, Then in 2012, they started talking about um, hosting servers in drones that would sort of fly around in open water and sort of make it difficult for people to shut down the network, which I thought was amazing. And then in 2014, they actually picked up all of their servers and moved them to Ascension, which is a volcano island. Um, I think it's in the middle of the Atlantic. I'm not kidding. It's like in the middle of the Atlantic off the coast of South America somewhere. There's this random island um, and they were like, hey, we're just going to put our servers here. Now, it turned out that island uh, was a British protectorate and so there was some jurisdiction, but um, this isn't new and I think it's uh, going back in history. It's just really interesting to see human ingenuity at work um, when it comes to people trying to transcend the physicality of uh, what we historically have seen as boundaries. So, it's pretty yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, where does the rubber actually meet the road then here? If we don't think it's at the sort of code or protocol layer, if we don't think it's actually running the network, 
I think that there's one obvious answer, right? Which is the on and the off ramps. Yep. At the end of the day, we're still talking about the financial system. And yep. anytime a Bitcoin again, touches a US dollar, you better believe that there is going to be boom, boom, lightning. <laughs> <laughs> I always joke that, you know, my my Bitcoin isn't any good to me if I can't ultimately cash it out and go buy a Lambo with it, right? Now, I don't actually believe that for myself, perhaps, but ultimately you do need these on and off ramps in order to give the damn thing value. Well, until we can upload our brains into the metaverse and uh, live in a world of crypto only where we have no human needs, uh, we don't need food, we don't need to pay rent. Um, so until we hyper-Bitcoinize and upload our brains to whatever servers and drones floating in outer space, we're stuck here, Jill, in these meat sacks we call our bodies. Oh, God. Anyway, so as we discussed, FinCEN, we still have KYC and AML requirements to contend with on all exchanges. Um, We have even Bitcoin ATMs, which at one point were kind of the last bastion of being able to get Bitcoin in and out of the system uh, without having to go through that. They are pretty much fully regulated now. Every time I see a Bitcoin ATM sign, usually at gas stations, I'll stop in and just just see what, what the process is. And they all require a picture of you and your license, your driver's license, whatever well, it is. Actually, the rules... Address, wait, hold on. But the rules for ATMs, right? Um, so actually, I'll tell a story. Last time I was in Boston... Boston, Jill, you'll like the story. I was at a Boston. I was at a bar in the North Shore. Um, you were at a bar. I was at a bar. In the North Shore. I was gonna be at a bar, um, and I wanted to get some scratch tickets, some lottery tickets. Right? They're called scratchies. Um, it's my favorite <laughs> hobby. It's something uh, my partner's family likes to do. Um, and so there is an, a machine in the bar where you put dollars in and you get lottery tickets out. Right. Um, But there's a limit, right? Same thing with Bitcoin ATMs. I think any transaction under a certain threshold doesn't require ID. So if it's under like 50 bucks, you don't need to use ID. And this is a part of existing money transmission law, right? So again, it goes back to this thing where people are like, oh, I went to Bitcoin ATM and I didn't put in my ID. It's unregulated. I'm like, no, dumb, dumb. They're following money transmission laws, which state that cash transactions under a certain amount don't require KYC AML. Boom. Period. End sentence. I'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so yeah, I mean, regardless of of what they actually involve or demand, the reality is, is that most of these ATMs at this point do require some kind of KYC AML hurdles. Everyone is just engaging in a fair amount of CYA, cover your ass. Um, Local Bitcoins was another one that for a long time was one of the last holdouts of a place where you could go. Local Bitcoins is basically like Craigslist. You can think of it, right? It's an online marketplace. You can go on there and you can find people who are buying and selling Bitcoin. And for the most part in the United States, the way it's been used has been people going and meeting up in person and doing Bitcoin for cash trades. But again, local Bitcoins more recently has cracked down on this uh, by instituting KYC and AML functionality on their site as well. And again, I think it goes back to show you, Jill, um, this is the difference between regulation and enforcement, right? So you could have regulation that says you can't do X, Y, Z, but if you don't have a central entity where you can enforce that rule, then 
okay. Um, and this is what makes peer to peer technology. So <laughs> then <laughs> well, what are you going to, what are you going to do? Right. Um, and this yeah, is what's so yeah. interesting to me. Like all of these companies is basically pain in the ass to be a company because you as a founder can be jailed for violating law, right? You are responsible for following rules and regulations. You have physicality. You operate inside of a body that is exists in the X, Y, Z, and T time dimension. And so they can find you. Um, and I think that's what's so interesting about Bitcoin, right? Satoshi Nakamoto is a pseudonym. Nobody knows who, what, where that is is. Um, and similarly, you know, if you have a group of people, an open source movement with no central entity controlling it, there is no central point for enforcement to go and attack and enforce regulations. And I think this is one of the things that makes Bitcoin companies in particular so interesting. And actually, we've talked about this in our prediction markets episode, right? Like if you're a company and you're running a decentralized prediction market, you are the choke point. And so this to me will be really interesting to see if more and more people in this world, decentralized finance or permissionless applications will choose not to start companies and raise venture capital and blah, 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 but will choose instead to be pseudonymous, to be unknown, and to just simply release really uh, simple software clients that allow people to interact with technology so that there can be no real enforcement. That's kind of cool. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. So... I know that you wanted to talk for a second as well here about bank accounts and a little something called operation. Choke yeah. Point, so the right? on and off ramps looks the, the biggest choke point for any Bitcoin company is getting access to a bank account. And over the last five years, um, in the 150 companies I've invested in and worked with, uh, bank accounts have been the number one issue. Um, so operation choke point, um, if you have time, look it up. It's actually a initiative um, that the Department of Justice undertook where they invest investigated a bunch of banks and they applied all sorts of scrutiny. And basically the unstated goal of Operation Choke Point was to shut down any businesses that could potentially wade into a regulatory gray area. So examples are people who sold mm -hmm. ammunition, people who sold cable box descramblers, uh, people who um, provided dating services, people who sold fireworks, escort services. Um, basically what they were going after, money transfer agents uh, were a big part of this as well. Porn companies were part of this. Basically, it was a way for the government and the DOJ to apply pressure to the banks providing banking services to businesses that the government finds um, unsavory in some way, shape, or form, even though under the laws of this country, they are doing nothing wrong. And obviously, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies fall squarely into that category. And so many companies um, that were touching Bitcoin were part of the targeted group um, of Operation Choke Point. Operation Choke Point has been a big contentious issue. There have been lawsuits. Um, people have sued the DOJ. People have sued the government. People have sued banks. Um, it's been really interesting. And so again, what we're going to see is that... Um, Governments are going to apply choke points to the places they can. Banks are already heavily regulated. And if you are in enforcement and you go to a bank who's pro-crypto or banks crypto companies and you say, hey, we're going to come in and audit you every single week for the next five years unless you cut off these companies, guess what you're going to do? Yeah. I mean, it's really dystopian when I start to read through the details of this. I was actually not familiar with this. But I mean, it's just so open to interpretation it can get very dystopian very quickly here. Oh, and look, yeah. I'm no diehard libertarian. I am all for consumer protection, <laughs> a lot of these measures. But 
yeah, it gets scary very quickly. Oh, yeah. And um, if you want to talk more about this, Bill Barheit at Abra has stories. He's the one who clued me into it in 2015 when we first met. Um, I remember having breakfast with him at a small diner in Palo Alto, and he just started yelling about Operation Choke Point. He got so angry. And I was like, Oh my God, am I going to (laughs) die? It was like week three uh, working in in Bitcoin professionally. Um, But no, he's totally got it. And I think you can read a lot about it online. Um, But going on, look, um, local Bitcoins brokers are being convicted of running illegal money transmission schemes. It goes both ways, right? People buying and selling Bitcoin. The company itself is now being pressured to do KYC ML, which you already talked about. Craigslist and peer-to-peer marketplaces are under pressure as well. The on and off ramps are going to be the places where pressure really gets applied. That's right. So let's talk about enforcement. So what happens? So we're talking about here, so there's regulation, which we've talked about a bit, and we're talking now about enforcement and really applying action. The other two things I want to talk about, uh, number one is custodians and intermediaries. So what we talked about in the ETF FNO episode, episode 20, one of the things I mentioned, Jill, is that um, analysis we did at CoinShares showed that 17% of all Bitcoin is already managed by intermediaries. And custodians also become choke points, right? If I know that Coinbase custodies 5% of the world's Bitcoin and I want to seize Bitcoin, I'm going to go to Coinbase and I'm going to freeze those Bitcoins. Um, And so I think, again, anytime we add in intermediaries, I was talking to someone yesterday who's trying to say that we needed a new DTCC for Bitcoin. I was like, honestly, if that's what we're doing, I don't want to do this because that defeats the whole fucking point of this. Why would... Totally. Well, I mean, there there are a couple of arguments you can make around that. If... If your viewpoint is that that is the way it's going anyway, and we're just going to accelerate it and take it to its illogical conclusion, fine. I can at least engage in that conversation. But I think that exactly right. The the point has to be that we need to prevent it from going in that direction anyway. Because as soon as it goes there, as soon as we have one or even a few centralized custodians that are holding all of the Bitcoin, it loses a huge portion of its value. Absolutely. And this is where when I get to the last point, um, it's super dystopian and we'll end it here. Seizing Bitcoin. Governments have been seizing Bitcoin for a very long time. First, Longer than yep. people realize. The Department of Justice, exactly. DOJ, um, Silk Road Auctions, they seized Bitcoin from the Silk Road. In fact, they seized 150,000 Bitcoin and they auctioned them off in 2015 for $48 million or $334 for Bitcoin. I recall because I was trying to put together a syndicate to bid on the auctions. Uh, there were a bunch of people putting together these syndicates because they were run as a Dutch auction. So basically the highest price won the lot and then it went in pecking order. Um, the second example I want to talk about is the Bulgarian government. They seized a little over two hundred thousand dollars of uh, two hundred thousand bitcoins. If you think about that, that's a little over one percent of the total fully diluted bitcoin supply seized by one government, and that was worth nearly three billion dollars mm-hmm. at its peak in twenty seventeen. The Bulgarian government says it's been liquidated through open market activities over the last year or two. Some people think they still hold it. Some people are trying to advocate, saying like Bulgaria is the first country to have Bitcoinized, which is just beyond stupid. Um, I don't even want to go there. But then you look at Venezuela and Iran, where governments are seizing Bitcoin miners, right? That's another route um, of seizure. So again, what I want to get down to is this. The line between regulation and enforcement is 
a fine line. Jurisdiction in a world that is digital is hard to define. Physical borders don't necessarily apply. But at the end of the day, anytime you're centralizing activity, anytime you're taking a bunch of coins and putting them in the trust of an intermediary or company that has a base of operations in a country that is known, that has a reputation for applying draconian self-serving laws, you are doing it wrong. That is not the point of Bitcoin. Strong ending. I think we'll leave it there for this week. But I just want to also highlight as well, as much hype as crypto going to Washington has gotten, we are years into this story. It is not just beginning. And I also want to emphasize, we are years away from it ending, if ever. Because as you put it, Meltem, revolutions, they don't have an ending. They're ongoing fights. That is correct. What fun, Jill. And we'll be back next week with more gear grinding, I'm sure. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you. So please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Our episodes go live Thursday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends, or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you, and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.